Thank you for coming uh, this morning. Thank you for having me. It is uh, good to be back home uh, in front of Wyzetta. We get asked all the time um, since we've been in transition, probably for about three years, because uh, we knew the work was ending in Mongolia and we were working hard um, to pass it to the nationals and then come, uh, come back. So we've had this life of transition, and I get asked all the time, how's it been? What's it like to be back in North America? Are you figuring stuff out? To be honest, it's been a lot of this, yeah, a lot of kind of navigating things. There have been starts, there have been stops, there have been restarts. But I think all in all, even the difficult things, we've been blessed, and a lot of that has to do with you, our church family, Wyzetta. So I want to say thank you very much. I knew it was getting hard for my family when I thought I was bringing good news to my boy Joseph, my son Joseph, and I said, Joseph, guess what? Finally, you get a bed of your own. Finally, you get a room of your own. And Joseph, I could just see it kind of welling up inside of him and bless his little heart, yeah? He wants to be strong. He wants to be cool. He wants to be brave. But he tries to hold it in. He tries to hold all the emotion in and just starts bubbling out. And you guys know Beaker from the Muppets? Uh, just who, how he looks. He's like, okay, Dad. I knew it had gotten to that point, yeah, where that had to be the last thing. But my... My kids are in a good school district. They're doing very well, and I'm very happy uh, to see that. My wife is also doing well. It's good to see my family just kind of safe, secure, nesting, even thriving. So the last year in Mongolia, we gave up some stuff. It was a season, yeah? It was a period of time, and we were working 12 hours a day. And when you work like that, and I came home at 9 p.m., pretty much the only energy I had was, wife, what's for dinner? She would reply, potatoes. I would say, thank you, good night, I love you. She would say, thank you, good night, I love you. I think when you're that tired and you're moving, and we knew it was going to be in an end, and if we could make it, God would bless it, and he did, and we're very thankful. But one of the things that we gave up, it was just, it became a luxury, was kind of our sense of humor, yeah? So we've gotten back... And we've done an inventory of all the kind of major stressors that you can have in life. And over the last two years, we've looked at it, and out of the top ten, we've had every single one except for divorce. Coincidentally, <laughs> the last couple of weeks I've been teaching on divorce in one of our, in one of our classes, actually marriage from uh, Matthew uh, 19, where God, or Jesus comes in, and he says, you know what, marriage is more than just you and your family. It's a covenant. It's not a contract. It's a covenant type of love. It's a vocation. It's a calling. It is also supposed to be missional. In your marriage, you guys are supposed to build each other up so much in a way that your cup will overflow. You will be fruitful and you will bless those around you. And when you have that in your marriage, when you're living that kind of intensely, when you're putting yourself that submissively before God and you're moving out, there's going to be contact with the outside world. There's going to be friction. There's going to be obstacles. There's going to be things that come up and make it difficult. And when you come up against obstacles in the outside life, because you're doing what God's called you to do, there's going to be things that happen inside your marriage. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be friction. There's going to be that tension when you're living that intensely. And in the midst of this, as I often do, I put my wife on the spot when I was teaching. And just in the transparency of the moment, I said, Terry, We've gone through a lot. We've gone through this transition. Things were really hard that last year in Mongolia. Just honestly, did you ever consider divorce during that period? My wife didn't hesitate. She said, of course not, George. I never, ever considered a divorce. But 
on more than one occasion, I considered murder. (laughs) That's a biblical godly answer, right? And I'm going to credit that to my wife's sense of humor. It's returned, right? You know my wife, she has a beautiful sense of humor. It's dry, it's witty, sparkle with a little bit of sarcasm. I'm the people person, where's the next party? But just in case, just in case that wasn't my wife's sense of humor, if she shows up next week and the following week and I'm not around and she tells you I'm on an extended ice fishing trip, someone please just make a call on my behalf, okay? Just where I am. But we are, I think, coming to the end. We can see the welcoming arms, and I just thank you very much, Wyzetta. You are our home. You have been. I want to open up uh, the message this morning with reading from one of my favorite books. It's called The Giving Tree. Once there was a tree, and she loved a little boy. And every day the boy would come, and he would gather her leaves and make them into crowns and play king of the forest. He would climb up her trunk and swing from her branches and eat apples, and they would play hide-and-go-seek. And when he was tired, he would sleep in her shade, and the boy loved the tree very much, and the tree was happy. But time went by, the boy grew older, and the tree was often alone. Then we see in the story the boy comes back three different times, and each time the tree says, Come, boy, let me make you happy. Each time the boy asks for more. First, he wants money. She doesn't have money, so she gives him her apples to sell. The second time, he wants a house. She can't give him a house, so she gives him her branches. So he takes her branches and builds a house. And last time, he's sad, and he wants to sail away, so she gives him her trunk until she's just a stump. And each exchange ends with the tree was happy. She was happy that she could give to the boy. Until this final exchange... After a long time, the boy came back again. I'm sorry, boy, said the tree, but I have nothing left to give you. My apples are gone. My teeth are too weak for apples, said the boy. My branches are gone, said the tree. You cannot swing on them. I'm too old to swing on branches, said the boy. My trunk is gone, said the tree. You cannot climb. I'm too tired to climb, said the boy. I'm sorry, said the tree. I wish I could give you something, but I have nothing left. I'm just an old stump. I'm sorry. I don't need very much now, said the boy, just a quiet place to sit and rest. I'm very tired. Well, said the tree, straightening herself up as much as she could. Well, an old stump is good for sitting and resting. Come, boy, sit down, sit down and rest. And the boy did, and the tree was happy. Kevin ended his sermon last week with the idea of just having a willing heart in this open hand series. Kevin built the idea throughout the sermon that God is going to move, and when he moves, he's going to do so in creative, beautiful, imagine-filled ways. And all we have to do to be part of that bigger story is just have a willing heart, just be willing to step out in faith. The thing that strikes me about the giving tree is just the unconditional love shown by the tree, the sacrificial love shown by the tree to the boy. And I know some people deconstruct this story as a satire, but even if you do, There is that unconditional love to the boy. When I come into Jesus' presence, I often feel like the boy. Jesus, you have given me so much. What should I do? There's always that feeling that I want to thank him with every part of my being, but somehow I know it won't be enough. That's part of gratitude and worship. It's an attitude we have before the Lord. 
Everything that we have is a beautiful gift from him. So our lives expressed back to him should be lived as one beautiful gift in everything that we do. So when I think of the giving tree and how I worship and thank my Savior, there's often a switch. There's often a change in my perspective. Christ will always be the tree. We will always come to him and he will always give and give and give and give. But as Christ followers, we are called to be giving trees as well. We follow in his model. When the broken, the hurt, the people on the fringe, our brothers and sisters in Christ come to us, we are to give and give and give. There's a simple truth here. And in my mind, the greatest commandment relates to everything. When we get the first commandment right, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, the second commandment comes much easier. When I come before God, before the giving tree, and I see how he's given to me, and I can accept it, and I see and I learn how he loves me, and I get filled up with his love so much, it cannot help but overflow out of my spirit in compassionate ways to my neighbor. That's how it works. That's a willing heart. That's open hands. That's a life given back to Jesus as a gift. And I think when you get moving in this faith journey and really start fully trusting Jesus and your faith deepens and matures, you're going to want to give back to him. The question is how to do that. In every instance, in every case, in every circumstance, Jesus is quite clear. What you did for the least of these, you did for me. It's always people. And I found when I am quiet before the Lord and I'm seeking his direction, the Lord will always give me opportunity. When I pray, dear Jesus, please bring someone into my life this next week, someone I can give to, someone in pain or seeking or on the fringe. When I pray that way, Jesus always answers yes. That's part of the faith. As Christ followers, we are called to give. We are called to give our lives for others, and that's it. People ask me a lot, about the calling. I was a missionary, so I'm supposed to get it, right? People ask George, how did you hear God's call? How did you hear his voice? How was he telling you, George, you should go to Mongolia? And I say, that's really easy. Terry made me go, yeah? My (laughs) wife. We all have in our hands talents, skills, passions. We are called to use whatever we have And I think the beginning of God's calling is not necessarily this direct line to the throne room out of which God comes down out of the blue and changes your direction at 180 degrees. Rather, I think the beginning of calling of God's will in our lives is a problem that he set before us. There is something on your heart. And I want to do something this morning as we look at faith and we look at trust and we look at the gift that go hand in hand I want to redefine the word problem. I think we all set out trying to solve problems. And there are many problems we can solve. We can solve the problem of career and how I make myself more successful. Some people focus on the problem of entertainment. And they spend their lives pursuing comfort and pleasure. For some of us, it's education, it's wealth, how do I get rich... For some of you, your problem is sitting right next to you this morning and we dedicate our lives trying to fix 
our wives or our husbands. The problem you try to solve will ultimately define you. It will be your identity. There's a spiritual reality that you and I can live in. There is this God of heaven, and he wants to do things with you and me. Being a disciple of Jesus, I think, means learning what God, what Jesus wants to do with you and me. And I think that's what prayer life is. Primarily, it's talking to Jesus about the things that we are working on together. And I think that's why prayer works well in a certain kind of life. If you're not in dialogue with God about the things, the problem you're trying to solve, then prayer turns into something a little bit different. If you look at people in the Bible, they're always in dialogue with God. Moses doesn't do anything without turning to God. All of them. What are we doing together, God? What's breaking your heart? The world is broken around us. There are children that go to bed hungry every night. There's human trafficking. There's poor education around the world where little kids are growing up and they don't even know the potential that they have. They don't know who they could be or what they could be. And the cycle repeats to the next generation. There's extreme poverty that cripples spirits and breaks futures. What about the building of the church around the world? So many people don't even know who Jesus is. What breaks your heart? What's your problem? When you begin to lay that out before God, when your heart breaks, your response has to be to give. That's faith. That's open hands. And I know it's scary. It's very scary. A couple years ago, I had a chance to go bungee jumping. And that was scary. You see me here... And you can see where the boy gets it. If you can see my face a little clearer, I'm standing on the ledge. And literally what I'm thinking right now, I have this opportunity before me. I paid for this. And as I'm seeing meters down, like 20 meters down the tops of the trees, everything inside my body is screaming, don't do this. I'm getting sick. It's welling up. I'm trying to hold it together. I'm thinking literally, can I back out of this? My feet are tied. Can I turn around and hop down without losing my pride? Yeah, without losing face. Fortunately, my kids were not born at that point, so there was that option. But I did eventually jump. That's the trust part. The running joke before we went to the field, I heard this on many occasions. Do not give your whole life to God, because if you do, he might send you to a place like Outer Mongolia. And I just told you, good one, Terry, yeah? Good one. Honestly, I don't know what the leap of faith will look for, like for you, but I have a feeling that you already know. You already know what God is leading you to, what he's nudging you to, what he's asking you to jump into. Let me tell you, standing there is scary, but after I made the jump, you see me. I'm pointing at the camera. I'm flying. I'm having a good time. You want more joy in your life? What is our joy? Jesus. Giving it all to him simply means more of him. Stepping in faith, in trust, into him means more of him. And don't misunderstand joy for comfort, okay? The more you trust, the more you give, the more Jesus. 
What does it actually mean to live by faith, with open hands to God? Perhaps one of the greatest stories of a life lived by faith is in Genesis, Abraham. If you have your Bible, let's go ahead and turn to Genesis 15. It's really two ideas that we see. We're going to look at the life of Abraham. It's two ideas that we see that break down this life of faith. And we've mentioned them. First is trusting in our living God. And the second is we are to bless others. We're to give. Up until this point in Abraham's life, things have been going pretty well. Back in chapter 12, God gave him this great promise. And we'll come back to this. He promises him that he's going to make him a great nation. This is the promise. This is the story that's repeated all throughout the Bible. We'll bring that out a little bit later. It's the promise for Abraham, Israel, you, me, everybody. At this point, God called Abraham to leave his home. Abraham did. He obeyed. Abraham is learning to trust that God will actually provide for him. They'll take care of him. In chapter 15, we have this. Chapter 15, verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I'm your shield. Your very great reward. But Abraham said, O sovereign God, what can, I, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who inherited my estate, Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then when the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up into the heavens, count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and has credited to him as righteousness. What we have here is God speaking to Abraham. And he starts with a promise, right? He says, I will be your shield, I'll be your reward. And the reward he's talking about is the land that he promised to him. Abraham, we see his response, the man who has just three chapters lived by faith, the man who's gone out and has obeyed God. What is his declaration to God? What's his response to God? Is it, okay, God, I trust you? No, he comes back with God with a question, oh God, what are you going to do for me? I'm still childless. See, ten years earlier, God promised Abraham a child. That child hasn't been born. is becoming more and more improbable as Abraham gets older. He's now 75 years old. Now here, Abraham, the man who in Hebrews 11 is credited twice with being righteous because of his faith. Here he's doubting the promise. He comes back with the question, God, where are you? You promised this. What's happening? I still remain childless. At least in this particular moment, he's doubting. For each of us, we must consider this question. What does it mean to live by faith? And I think this is an essential observation. A life of faith does not mean the absence of doubt. Doubt, rather, is an opportunity for faith. Almost without fail, when we read the scriptures, we see that true faith is never easy, but rather born in the midst of doubt, in the midst of struggle, in the midst of the question, Every time. And Abraham is no exception. Often in the middle of these great stories of faith, heroes are looking up to God and asking, God, where are you? That's Abraham. That's Moses. That's David. That's Peter. That's Peter again. That's you. And that's me. 
If you're sitting here today and you have questions, you are in the right place. The life of faith has tension, and do not be afraid of that tension. It's what motivates us. It's what pushes us forward. The problem before us. What's your problem? Faith is not the absence of doubt. Abraham had great doubts. You read in chapter 16 and following, Abraham was full of doubt. Faith is actually the place where we stay in conversation over time. But you see, Abraham's life, he doesn't quit the dialogue. He's talking to God. He's honest. He's saying, God, where are you? You look at David, a man after God's own heart. What does David do in the Psalms? He's crying out to God. The dialogue never quits. The deep intimacy with God is cultivated. It would be another 25 years before Abraham sees his son, and another 400 years before the descendants of Abraham would actually enter into the promised land. Faith is a journey, and it's learned in the trenches, in the stretches, in the questions, in the tension, and the problem, the dialogue with God. Let's go back to verse 5. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord and was credited to him as righteousness. Have you ever seen the stars in the night sky without any light pollution? It's amazing. It's majestic. It is awe-inspiring. It is fear-filled. Count the stars. If you've seen the stars like that, you know there's only one response that you can have to a command like that. When you look up and see that, impossible. I can't. And it's in that moment... Faced with the impossible and unimaginable task that Abraham believes. The progression here is telling. God makes this promise to Abraham, you will have a biological son. But Abraham is old. We find out in Genesis 11, his wife Sarai is barren. Verse 30. Abraham doubts. Then God makes this second promise. Count the stars because that's how great your descendants will be. That promise is not improbable. It's unthinkable. It's impossible. It's when the promise moves from improbable to impossible. It's when God's promise is so beyond Abraham's comprehension. He can't figure it out. Abraham finally says, God, I trust you. I'm ready to step into your story. There's a prayer we should be praying, I think, on a daily basis. It comes from this text. I can't. I can't, God. But you can. This is yours, God. I am yours. Do with me what you want. If you read Abraham's story from start to finish, you'll see Abraham is undergoing this radical change. It's a change from Abraham living in his own selfish story with his own desires and his own wants, stepping into God's larger story, and it's a story that each of us this morning are called into. It's a story marked by radical inclusiveness, risky action, impartial love, and justice for the world. I think many times the tendency for us is to live our own story. And we look for God to come into our story instead of entering into his story. There is a story in the Bible, and it's God's plan for redemption since the fall. You look at Genesis 1 through 11... I like to call the prologue. 
It's 2,000 years of just us on our own, thinking we can do it on our own. We're humanistic, we're prideful, and we're sinning. We're doing it on our own, and it climaxes with the Tower of Babel, and then God comes and makes this promise, and the curtain goes up, and the story begins. It's our story. Faith calls us out beyond the edge of our own comfort, our own preferences, to a story that is bigger than us, new altogether. Our story is assumed into God's bigger, better, greater story. Faith calls us into the night to count the stars. Impossible. Faith calls us to say, I can't, but God, you can. I'm not sure how. I have my doubts. I can't figure this out. But I believe you can and will, so I'll step into your story, even if it's a small step and I'm filled with doubt. That's faith. What will we do by faith, Wyzetta? People of God, what will we do as a community by faith? First is trust. We have to trust God in the impossible because it's all impossible. But faith also requires us to give. And everyone always gets real nervous about this part, right? What is God going to ask me to give? But there's a truth you can claim. Here's the good news. Steps of faith are always, always taken in response to a promise. Claim the promise. Let's go to Genesis 12, 1 through 3. The call of Abraham. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into one great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God gives a command to Abram. Bless, give, God says to Abraham, I will bless you, but that blessing is not for you. It's not for you to loan, to hold, and keep. It's for you to give out. You are blessed to be a blessing. Give. God says to Abraham, I will bless you, and all the nations on earth will be blessed through you. This is the mission of Israel, building a great nation so that they could bless. And if you don't understand the Old Testament in the context of this blessing and this promise of building a great nation... You're not going to understand the Old Testament and how it leads up into the New Testament. It's in the context of this blessing. The story of Abraham in Genesis 12, God promises to bless Abraham. And in the next book, the book of Exodus, God promises to be with Moses. This covenant is renewed and it goes all the way down till we see the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, where God says, your throne will always be. That's Jesus. That's the promise. All the way up to Revelation, this is the story. It's not just Abraham's story, it's not just Israel's story, it's our story. It's the promise. The promise is essential. Going deeper in the faith, the trust and the give, always requires the promise first. That's how we see it, that's how God works. He makes the promise and he keeps the promise. And we can trust that. And then we can give. This is what the people of Israel were about. This is the mission for the man Abraham. This is the mission for the people of Israel. This is who they were supposed to be. When is the time when Jesus gets angry in his ministry? Cleansing of the temple. Let's go to Mark 11. Cleansing of the temple. 
Mark 11:15 and following. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. It's true. They were destroying the sanctity of the temple by selling and making making gains, financial gains. But there's also another primary truth here, and this is why Jesus gets angry. Where are they selling in the temple? They're not selling in the inner courts. They're not selling in the place where the Jews come to worship. They're selling in the Gentile court. He's quoting Isaiah here, and in Isaiah, there's a provision made for the non-Jews, for those people believing in God, that they can come and worship God. This is one of the primary reasons why Jesus gets so angry, because the blessing through Abraham and Israel, that the bless, they're blessed so that they're going to bless the others, they kept the promise for themselves. And they are denying God's provision for the non-Jews. This is the mission for you, me, your mission, give, bless. That's why you're on this planet. That's why you got born. That's why you woke up this morning. To give, to bless. A lot of people will say, I'm not trained, yeah? I'm not skilled. I'm not, I don't know how. I'm not articulate about my faith. I don't know how to talk to people about Jesus. I don't have the resources. But it's simple. It's the giving tree You give what you have. If you have apples, give your apples. If you have branches, give your branches. If you have a trunk, be willing to say, come boy, come girl, let me bless you. It's not optional. It's why you were made. The first area we learn about Jesus is the beginning of his ministry when he announces in Luke that his ministry has begun. And how does he do that? He quotes the prophet and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because God has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. To the people without, to people who have not been blessed, to people who are just barely living on the margin, to people who are thought to be unblessed. Jesus is constantly seeing the poor, remembering the poor, championing the poor, serving the poor, giving to the poor, loving the poor. I want to tell you about a woman in Mongolia that changed my faith forever. She, t- she showed me what faith truly is. She showed me the trust part. She showed me the give part. She's a beautiful child of God, and she knows it, and she lives const- confidently in this faith. And it's surprising because if you know her past, the first time I met her, she grew up in such a difficult life. The first time I met her... I had to introduce myself almost five times because her name was Tenakui. It means you don't know me. And there's another name in Mongolian, Nerkui. So when you say, hello, my name's George, she kept saying back, you don't know me. I have no name. This is pretty common for girls in Mongolia. No name, no identity, no meaning. When she was 11, her mom died and her dad left. She was the oldest of three. She lived in a city, very little family, and she didn't have much option. She ended up like many do. She was preyed upon by predators. 
To save her two young sisters from the same fate, she resigned herself and for the next 16 years was trapped in one abusive relationship after another. From a time she was a young girl, she was told that she was worthless, she was beaten, and she was raped over and over again. No. I must never say to myself, my faith is good because I'm safe and secure. There is evil in this world. I must have a problem. I am blessed to give. Jesus is quite clear in the parables that he teaches to do nothing is a sin. This isn't something about which Jesus is kind of neutral about. Trust and then give. Tanaki came to believe in Jesus. And she came to our church. And she was a servant and she was out there. And she was one of those people that just when you saw She lit you up. That was her spirit. Always serving, always giving. She was a magnet. She, you just saw Jesus in her. In Mongolia, when winter came, it was hard for a lot of Mongolians because they lived in these shacks where you could literally see through the cracks to the outside. They live in gears, which is basically a glorified tent. And the medical situation is not good in Mongolia. So if you get sick in the winter, it could be difficult. Tanaki had a beautiful little girl, two years old. Winter came and she got pneumonia. And we prayed for her. We tried to do a lot of things. And there was a battle and there was a struggle, but that little girl lost. There's nothing you can say. This was about two months in. I heard her pray a prayer that changed my faith forever. Two months into the midst of her deepest pain, her deepest sorrow, she came to Bible study and she prayed. God is good. God is good. God is good. God is good. She kept repeating it. See, God is most glorified in the midst of your deepest pain and your deepest sorrow, not in the midst of all our wealth and possessions. When we can say, God, you are good, I trust you, no matter what. You are good, I trust you. She is a hero of faith. She taught me what faith truly means. You want to be a hero of faith? First, we must be heroes to the most vulnerable. It's what God started with Abraham. God carried through fulfillment to completion in Jesus Christ. Paul wrote, the scriptures foresaw. This is all one great story. This is God's story. It's connected and you can be part of it. The scriptures foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Just as he does Israel. And announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. The promise in Genesis 12 is the gospel. All nations, everybody, every human being on earth will be blessed through you. The greatest blessing we have, the greatest gift we can give anyone is to show them that they can be a beautiful child of God. See, their lives change. I want to conclude with what Jesus said to his disciples before he left. Jesus called his disciples together one last time. And before he leaves, he tells them, give, bless. Jesus says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. You see, it's all tied together. That's the promise from Abraham way back there. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Go to the land I will show you, to the place and make disciples of all nations. 
That command goes way back to Abraham. Now it's coming to you and it's coming to me. Make disciples of every nation. Give them your apples, give them your branches, give them your trunk. Jesus commands his disciples to give themselves for the cross. And he tells us we'll have nothing. We'll have no money, we'll have no possessions, but we will be happy. He tells us we'll be locked in prison, but we'll sing songs and we'll witness to the guards. He tells us you will be beaten and stoned for your faith and count yourself honored to have suffered for the name. You'll have nothing. You'll have no college funds, you'll have no cars, you'll have no health care, but you will trust Jesus down to the absolute core of your being. And Jesus tells us to give ourselves because of the mandate he was given in eternity, in God's perfect plan. Before creation, the Father called the Son and said, Son, you're going to bless and you're going to give. You're going to give healing to the blind and the lepers. You're going to give truth to the lost. In John 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You're going to be faced with people who test you. In John 8, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? They said this to test him, so that they might have a charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. But then when they were questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And he bent down again and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go on your way. And from now on, do not sin again. The father said to the son, you're going to give him mercy. You're going to give hope to the hopeless. Then, my beloved son, you're going to give them love and forgiveness. You will be before the giving tree, and you'll be nailed to it. You're going to give your blood, and you're going to bleed, and you'll give them your life, your death for the sake of them all. But death will not hold them, and you will give them hope and power and authority, the Great Commission. You will give them hope and power and authority so that they can give their lives. We are blessed. We are blessed to give. And finally, we must remember, never forget that we can trust. We can deeply trust because as you give, he will be with you always. That he will never leave you nor forsake you. That he will carry you to that day in the dwelling house of the God is with his people. He will live with them, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or sickness or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. That is the hope of every follower. That is the hope of you and me. As you move in faith, you can trust because this is your promise. It's yours and mine to claim, and we must claim this promise. Trusting, trusting, always in dialogue with Jesus on how to solve the problem that he's given us. Our work together with our Savior. We must give them the cross. And the only way we can do that is to give them our lives. Your life and my life, so that they might live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your promise. Thank you for your love and for all your gifts. I pray this week and this month and 
forever, that we would just live our lives as a beautiful gift back to you. And I pray that you will bring someone on the fringe to us this week. And I pray for humility and wisdom to show them your love. Jesus, we love you. We are yours. This is your church. Do with us what you want. Amen.